You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Okay, tonight we're looking at Judges 9, 1 through 6, 40, and 42 through 57. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relative and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, with, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to the, his father's house of Ophrah and killed his brothers and the son of, sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company... That was with him, rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. <coughs> Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, with his armor bare, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his house. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. We have been working our way through the Old Testament book, a weird Old Testament book called the Book of Judges. 
see on the front there. And uh, I've been trying to say each week that the book of Judges is a series of true stories. It's a collection of historical events that were compiled and written with, I think, two purposes. With the intent to try to show you that you have a great need for a Savior, but that you also have a great Savior for your need. And that's kind of the big theme that we keep seeing over and over and over and over as we go through this weird, obscure, crazy, gruesome, bizarro book. And uh, tonight is no less gruesome and bizarre as we're going to get into it. But before we get into it, here's what I want to set up. I literally just, you know, an hour or so ago, I was at the dinner table with my family. And one of the things that we love to do around the uh, dinner table is to tell jokes and, like, come up with jokes. And so uh, a year or so ago, um, my son Reed who plays basketball, he, um, he heard this joke and he delivered it. I'll deli- I'm going to deliver it to you. It's a knock-knock joke, so you can play along. And, uh, and I'll, I'll deliver it the exact way that he did it. Knock-knock. Who's Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who? Moo. <laughs> Didn't quite get the comedic uh, point of the joke, but it was fun nonetheless. And so I told them a knock-knock joke that they didn't understand. We'll see, how, we'll see if y'all do any better. Um, knock-knock. Control freak. Now you say control freak who? Huh? They didn't get it. They were like, wait, Dad, that's, I, we, we get it. Anyway. I begin like that because uh, the, the story that Blair just read for us is about a dude named Abimelech who is like the quintessential Bible control freak. Last week we looked at his dad named Gideon, who is, uh, turned out to be a monster, and his little son, uh, Abimelech, is like way worse. He gets, like, this is the book of Judges, right? As you go along, things get worse and worse and worse. So Abimelech, way worse, giant control freak. And uh, I just want you to know on the front end, as we look at this guy, my assumption is that everybody in the room is a control freak. And I think we struggle with control in different degrees and in different ways. But I think bedrock, we're all in the same boat. And if if you need some help coming to terms with that, let me just ask you some diagnostic questions on the front end so that we're all on the same page. Um, Here's some questions. Do you make for yourself endless to-do lists? Are you a lister kind of person? Control freak. Are Are you a person that usually takes over group projects? You know, it's like the, the project gets assigned and you're like, well, if it's going to get done the right way, then I got to do it. And I got to redo all the work of everybody else in the group. Um, do you feel captive to your schedule, your calendar, your, your Google calendar, you know, whatever you use? Um, do you worry a lot? Worry is a form of control. Do you lie a lot? Lying is a form of control. Uh, if someone comes up to you and, and they are upset and they present to you, uh, some negative emotion, do you immediately go into problem-solving mode, fix-it mode? You're a control freak. And then do you, get, um, do you get frustrated with them when they don't take your advice? Part of it. Um, are you easily angered or often, you know, often impatient with people? Is forgiveness a hard thing for you? All of that are symptoms of the fact that we... Uh, we need control. We're driven by control. And this passage, I think, is really helpful. It's been really helpful for me in terms of coming to terms with my own control freakness. Freakiness? That doesn't sound right. Um, so here's what I want to do. I want to break this passage down in uh, three predictable ways. 
And it's going to look like this. We're going to look at the reason for our control, the result of our control, and then the remedy to our control. The reason for it, the result of it, the remedy to it. So let's get into the story. Let's look at the reason for our control. In other words, why, why, why are we control freaks? Well, look at how, um, notice at the beginning, if you can even focus your eyes that small, um, notice Abimelech at the beginning, he volunteers for the role of king. This is what he's doing in verses 2 and 3. He goes to the people of Shechem, which is the name of a town, and he goes to them and he says, hey, there are 70 brothers of mine that are currently in charge, and that is horribly inefficient. 70 people trying to get things done. No organization can survive with 70 people at the top of the org chart. So what you should do is you just have one person in charge, and that person should be me. That's kind of what's going on in verses 2 and 3. This kind of reminds me of an episode in a, in a TV show. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Office. But um, in one particular episode, Dwight goes behind the office manager's back named Michael, and he meets with Jan so that he can communicate to her, I should be in charge. And he has this secret little meeting with her. It's a total power grab. And so she looks at him and she says, well, what would you do differently? If you, wanna, you, know, if you were in charge, what would you do differently? And he said, mostly get rid of waste. Get rid of the people there. Clean house. As he's like devouring these pancakes, if you remember that scene. And Michael finds out about his little rendezvous with Jan. And if you remember at the end of the episode, he makes Dwight stand up in front of everybody with a sign on his chest that says liar. And he's just kind of sitting there, standing there. Didn't go well for Dwight. Did go well for Abimelech. The power grab works. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 3. It says, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And here it is. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. We agree this is a good idea. So they put this dude, Abimelech, in charge. I mean, he house of cards his way to the top, and he gets in charge. And what's the first thing he does? Well, it's weirdly similar to what Dwight would have done. Look at, uh, look at verse 5. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, that's Gideon, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left for he hid himself. He, he cleans house. He eliminates the waste. He slaughters all of his brothers on his father's side, except for this one brother, Jotham, who escapes and runs away. And we're gonna, he'll be important in the story later, so hang on to him. But what do we see? We see somebody that is this lust for control and power and a desire to just get rid of any competition, get rid of anybody that stands in his way. Why? What do you think is driving this lust for control and this lust for power? Well, I think the text gives you two reasons. And these reasons you kind of have to read a little bit in between the lines, but let me show you. Here's the first reason. The first reason is fear. And here's where I get this from. If you look at verse 1, it says that he went to his relatives on his mother's side. Why is that important? Well, because the 70 brothers that were in charge were on his father's side, which you see in verse 5. And what that tells you is that you have a family that's divided. You have a deeply dysfunctional family. He came from his mother's side, but, his, but you know, he was on his mother's side, but his, his, the brothers on his father's side were in charge. They were the ones ruling over him, and so he felt vulnerable. He felt, um, he felt at their mercy. He felt unsafe. He felt afraid, and nobody likes feeling those things, so he developed a coping strategy, and he seized control. 
I don't like feeling at the bottom. I don't like feeling out of control. I don't like feeling vulnerable. So I'm going to grab for control. And that's what he did. He's driven by that sense of fear. There's a um, a New York uh, Times uh, bestselling author, Dr. Lisa Rankin. Here's what she says. She says, quote, when you're afraid, you feel the need to micromanage everything. You mistakenly think you live in a hostile, random universe that's out to get you unless you grab the wheel with both hands and steer your life towards what you want. When you feel fear, you develop a coping strategy, which is to seize control. And it takes a million different forms. For you, it might look like, I just have to have things organized. You know, you're way into Marie Kondo, and like everything has to be organized, and I have to have its place. Everything has to be uh, set a certain way. My desk has to look a certain way. The the room, the house, everything has to be a certain space, because if it... If, as soon as, if it's clean and it's organized and it's managed, then there's no room for chaos. There's no room for anxiety. There's no room for dysfunction. Fear drives the sense of control. Here's another form it takes. For a lot of you, the way that you seize control uh, in order to avoid your fears is just to intensely regulate what you eat. I mean, you, you know this as well as I do, that most, if not all, eating disorders are driven by this sense of this need for control. This sense of if I can control the calories, if I control how much I work out, then I will not feel that sense of uh, fear. Here's another one. Christians have this weird, uh, this weird preoccupation with trying to dis- with trying to discover God's will. You know this one. Who am I going to marry? What city am I going to live in? What uh, what am I going to do when I graduate? And I think most of the time, that sense of I got to know God's will is not driven by a desire to please him. It's driven by a desire of I've got to know, what, I've got to have control. I've got to have a sense of this is God's plan for my life. It's driven by a sense, it's, the openness of the future is too scary. It's too open-ended. What am I going to do? The fear drives the control. When we feel afraid, just like Abimelech, we grab for control. Here's the second reason. The second reason why... I think he grabs for control is because he has a lack of faith. Did you know that the proper name for God is, is this weird Hebrew word Yahweh? And anytime it's translated from Hebrew into English, it's, it shows up in, uh, in capital letters, the Lord. So anytime you're reading through your English Bible, anytime you see that word, the Lord, it's just the Hebrew version of God's proper name translated into English. Here's what's weird about this. In Judges chapter 8, verse 34, all through chapter 10, verse 6, God's proper name doesn't show up once. And what that means is is the book of Judges has given you a little window into a picture of a society and a picture of a man that has functionally cut God out of the picture. God is not a part of this picture and here's the deal. Whenever you kick God off of the throne of the universe, as it were, somebody has to climb up and take his place. And that tends to be us. When we kick God off of the throne, we climb up and take his place. In fact, I heard this John Stott um, once said that sin is, a great definition of sin is sin is when you substitute yourself for God. It's an interesting definition. Sin is whenever you Substitute yourself for God. If you, if you don't trust God with the details of your life, or if you don't believe that God exists, or if God just doesn't really matter to you, practically speaking, then what that means is 
Somebody has to be at the control center of the universe. And that becomes you and me. If God is not that, then that becomes us. It's a lack of, uh, it's a lack of faith. It's like, it's like when my wife, Catherine, is driving. Whenever she's driving and I'm in the passenger seat, I find myself hitting this invisible brake down by you know, my little spot. I find myself you know, grabbing the, the side of the door. and There's a car. Watch out. There's a, there's a car. What am I doing? I'm trying to drive the car even though I'm not in the driver's seat. Because I don't trust her as a driver. She's a great driver. She's a fine driver. I have no reason to not trust her. I just don't trust her. And so, but that's the picture. Whenever you don't trust the person driving, you try to start driving. If you don't trust God with your life, then you're going to seize control of your life. There's, um, I don't, I, I'm going to say this, and I don't mean it to feel guilt-trippy. But there is a correlation between your control freakness and your prayer life. Paul Miller, who wrote uh, the book The Praying Life, he, he said, he, here's how he defines prayer. He says, prayer is helplessness. That's what, that's what you're doing when you pray, is you're experiencing helplessness. God, help me. The reason we don't pray is because we don't want to feel dependent. We don't want to feel desperate. We don't want to feel weak. And so to avoid feeling those feelings, we just don't pray, and we just kind of grab control of our life. I got this. I don't need you. There's also a correlation between... Um, our control freakness, and and our willingness to rest. Did you know that God commands you? This is one of the ten. It's like one of the big ten, ten commandments. He commands you to take one day off from your labors and to rest. Now, I think as college students, your labors, your primary vocation is that uh, it's your schoolwork. So God, it's like a a one-day built-in vacation every week. Take, don't do any schoolwork for one day. It's command from the Bible. Now, some of us are like, one day? Man, I'm doing like four days. <laughs> Especially the seniors in the back. But for most of us, I'm guessing, I don't know, my guess is that's actually a, that's a challenging command. That's a hard one for us. Because to stop means there's just so much more to do tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to get ahead. I won't be able to keep up. And so to stop, it, it, it doesn't feel right. I've got to seize control. I can't trust God with that. I've got, I got to keep going. So it works the same way with money. Um, if you work or if you have any sort of income, do you ever tithe your, your income? Do you ever give your money away? Do you practice any sort of level of generosity now? I know you have a million excuses of like, I'm in college I'm poor. I've got, I've got school payments. I can barely I eat Taco Bell for a living. Like, I don't have any money. There's always going to be justifiable reasons to not be generous. Even when you get older and you're making money or whatever, there's always going to be a reason to not give your money away. To hoard your money is to say, I don't trust God. I can't give it away. This gives me power. This gives me a sense of security. This gives me control. I can't give it away. To, to, to seize control is a symptom of the fact we don't trust God. That's what's going on with Abimelech. He, he, he has this deep fear, and he has deep uh, lack of faith, and so that's the reason why he seizes control. That's why we do it too, fear and lack of faith. But okay, what happens? What happens when we start grabbing the steering wheel of our life and saying, I'm going to run this, I got this, I'm going to micromanage my universe. What's the result? Well, let's look. Uh, what happens next in the story? Okay, remember here was this dude that escaped, Jotham? He ran off, he survived the slaughter of the 70 people. Well, um, he climbs up on this mountain 
after this bloodbath, I didn't include this in your handout because it would have been even longer and Blair would have really hated me. But he, he stands up on this mountain and he shouts this curse down to everybody in Shechem. And he basically says this, when you put Abimelech in charge, that was a bad decision. He's going to end up destroying you and you're going to end up destroying him. And then he runs off. But what happens? Abimelech is in charge and he kind of runs things for about three years and everything's kind of going fine and everything's going well. But then there starts to be this animosity that develops between the people and Abimelech in charge. They start talking about revolt. And if this was a, if this was a musical, I, I would imagine that they're singing, rise up. When you live in on your knees, you rise up. And they're just they're talking about revolution. Revolution is in the air. And Abimelech hears it. When are these colonies going to rise up? And so... And so here they come, and Abimelech hears about this revolution, and so he has this bloodthirsty, he can't let go of the power. So he just starts going on a rampage. And this is what happens in verses 42 through 57. I'll just kind of boil it down for you. He storms one town, and everybody flees into a temple, which is basically a church. They're hiding in a church, and he locks the doors from the outside and gets all of his people to put wood all over the temple, and he sets it on fire. And he burns alive, look at verse uh, 49, a thousand men and women that were on the inside die, burned alive. And that's not enough to satisfy his thirst for vengeance. And so in verse 50, he goes over to the next town, Thebes, or Thebes, however you pronounce it. And he goes over to the next town, and he does the same thing. What happens when Abimelech seizes control and he is in charge? You see carnage, you see devastation, you see damage, you see just this mess. And I think that's the picture. That's the result of our control freakness. It's just a mess. It reminded me of um, my daughter. When she, was, when she was about 18 months old, I remember um, at the kitchen table feeding her yogurt. She, she used to call it yit you. That's how, that was her word for yogurt. Yeet you. So I'd give her the yeet you, and, and I would start feeding her the yogurt. You know, she's small, and she's, kind of, she's got a little bit, and she's sitting with a little tray at the table, and I'm feeding her the yogurt. But after a while, she didn't want to be fed. She wanted to feed herself. So she seized control from me and grabbed the yeet you and grabbed the spoon, and she would, she, would, she would dip it in the little thing, and then instead of putting it in her mouth, she would just sla- sling it to, into her face. And so she's grabbing, and half of it's on the floor, half of it's on her shirt. She not, barely, she's not even eating any of it at this point. And you just, when, she, when it's done, there's nothing in the little container, and yet you is everywhere. And then that's the picture. When, when you seize control, I got this. I can do it my way. It feels right, but in the end, that's the principle. It just makes a mess. And, and for our life, if, if you were to really think about what does control, what is, that, what is the mess that translates into our life? I think it translates into ulcers. I think it translates into stress. I think, it's, I think it translates into just chronic anxiety. Anybody feel anxious? When you're at the center of the universe, it tends to make you feel a little anxious. Uh, it, it, you have sleep disorders. It's hard to sleep. You're constantly irritable. You're just constantly angry. That's the mess. But here's what's crazy. This is what's crazy about, about really trying to seize control is that Abimelech lives in the same world that you and I live in, which is it's chaotic. It's unpredictable. You cannot control or manage all of the factors 
Did you see how Abimelech dies? Look at what happens. He, he, he goes to this uh, second town, and everybody runs into this tower, which is very similar to what happened in the first town. And look at verse 53. It says, you know, as they're all kind of hiding in this tower, as he's about to light it on fire, verse 53, a woman drops a stone from the tower and crushes his skull. Like, who saw that coming? <laughs> totally unpredictable. I'm a little confused on the logistics of this as well. Like, did she carry the stone from the bottom? I mean, she would have had to have planned and timed that thing perfectly. I don't know how it worked. But anyway, he could not control all the factors. That's the point. And even as he's dying, if you even notice at the very end, he even sees his control in the way in which he wants to die. Did you see that? In verse 54, he calls over some dude and he's like, nobody can know that a woman killed me, so just stab me right here. And the dude stabs him. Like, even to the bitter end, he's like, i got to control how I die. The epitome of control freak. But here's the point. Uh, you can't control all the variables. You aren't God. I'm not God. Abimelech isn't God. You can't manage the universe. You can't control what happens by the end of this meeting. We don't know what's going to happen. You can't control the fate of your loved ones. You can't engineer your life in such a way that you guarantee a certain outcome, that you get married or you get this certain job or this or that happens. We're not God. We can't control the factors. But this is the point. Illusion. Control is an illusion. And when you insist on grabbing it, you, you make a mess of your life. So, some of you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I think I, am a, I think I have a problem with control. I think I am driven by fear. I do see that this is a lack of faith. I do see the mess in my life. But okay, what do I do? How do I fix it? Do you see the irony? When I was uh, early in our marriage, I think I've told this story before, but early in our marriage, uh, I was going to see a counselor in Charlotte. And I was, I was starting to see my propensity for control, how much I want to control everybody's opinion of me and control my wife and control my environment and control, control everything. And I started to see it. I was like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I see it, I see it. What do I, like, what do, I do? Help me. What, what do I do? And he just laughed at me. And he was like, Matt, you're trying to control how much you control You're trying to change a pattern in your life using the pattern you're trying to change. That doesn't make any sense. But then I was left with this, I couldn't even ask the question of like, okay, well then what do I do? Because we're back to the problem. So it was just like, help. (laughs) I don't even know what to ask. What's the remedy? What do we do? Can we even ask that? What do we do? Well, let's look at the last thing. Here's the remedy. Uh, Look at verses 56 and 57. It says that at the very end, verse 57, it says that Abimelech receives this curse. The curse of God given through that brother that ran away, Jotham, comes upon him and he gets crushed. And that's the point, is that he gets what every faithless control freak deserves. The curse of God, cast out of God's presence. He didn't want anything to do with God and God said, okay, You can have life on your own terms. You can have life apart from me, and it gets crushed. Did you know that centuries later, centuries after this story, the curse of God falls again? In in Galatians chapter 3, it talks about the curse of God falling on Jesus. Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus became a curse at the cross 
Why is that? Well, Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus, says that it was God's will to crush him. On the cross, Jesus is being crushed. Jesus is being cursed. Jesus is being cast out of God's presence, just like Abimelech was. But here's what's crazy, is that Jesus wasn't a control freak. In fact, Jesus was the most dependent upon God, faithful person that ever walked the planet. I mean, think about it. Jesus shows up and instantly, as an infant, he shows up as an infant, Instantly vulnerable to the world, instantly dependent on his mom, instantly dependent on those that are looking over him. And then as he grows up and he lives his life, and he is arrested and he is bound. I mean, can you imagine being more vulnerable, bound, tied up? You're completely out of control. You're completely at the mercy of these Roman soldiers. In fact, at one point in, in, um, in Matthew 26, he says, I can call down angels at any point and wipe all of these people out and get out of this. He could have asserted control. He could have regained control of the situation, but he didn't. Why? And then he gets brought before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, hey, there are all these accusations, there are all these charges against you. And you know what Jesus says in response? Nothing. Here's all these accusations. Jesus could have come up with a very well-articulated, brilliant defense and argued his way out of this. He was innocent after all. He had nothing to hide. He had nothing to lose, but he didn't. He, he, he closed his mouth and he remained silent. Why? He gives up control. And then, uh, as he is uh, carried to the cross, he is beaten and stripped naked and nailed to a cross and pierced with a spear and people are shouting at him. They're like, you, you saved everybody else. Why can't you save yourself? If you're such a strong person, just grab some power, grab some control and save yourself. Climb down from the cross. And he doesn't do it. At every step, he is giving up control. He is becoming vulnerable. And he is faithful and dependent on his father. And yet he is being crushed at the cross with the curse of God, the wrath and the judgment of God poured out on him. And he's cast out of God's presence. And the big question is why? Here's why. It's because he's acted as your substitute. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. And he dies the death that you and I deserve to die. If sin is you substituting yourself for God, you know what salvation is? Salvation is God substituting himself for you. He steps in and receives what you deserve. And if you, take, if you take that reality into that part of your heart, the deep part of your heart where the fear is, where the lack of faith is, do you know what will begin to happen to you? You will radically be freed to start giving up control. If you really do believe, okay, here's someone like me that honestly really wants nothing to do with God, that functionally, I say that I'm a Christian. I say that I, you know, for, for those of us that are Christians, we, we claim the name of Jesus, but functionally speaking, we live a lot of our life as if God is not there. And yet, this is who Jesus dies for. Why would he die for someone like me? You know why? Because he loves you. If you know in your heart of hearts that he is for you, that he finds you precious, that he delights in you, you know what that begins to do? You can start to trust him. You can start to say, okay, your will instead of my will. I'm going to submit everything to you. As scary as it is for me to give up control of my life, I'm going to lean in and trust you. I'm going to start telling people about my, my disordered relationship with food. 
I'm going to start resting. In fact, everything that has to be done, I don't have to do the impossible. I can actually protest against the wave of stuff that I have to do, and and I will stop, and I will rest. I I can give away my money now, because it no longer has given me a sense of control. I'm trusting you, not it. You see how this works? When you bring the love of God into your heart, it, it, it begins to free you from control. It actually frees you to be the person that you were made to be. And I know that it is scary, but here's the thing. To, to faithless control freaks like me, here's what um, he does. He speaks a sweet word of grace to you and invites you to come into rest in his grace. And, and as scary as it is to give up control and to turn to him, to receive that grace will be the thing that begins to liberate you from your control freakness. Sin is you substituting yourself for God. But the gospel is that God came and substituted himself for you. And so the invitation for you tonight is to repent. Is to turn from the ways that you try to manage your life and to rest in the love of God that is for you in Jesus. That's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, thank you for tonight and thank you for these folks. I pray that you would make... um, yourself compelling to our scared and faithless uh, and control-grabbing hearts. Help us to know that you love, that you love control freaks and you came to die for real people like us. And I pray that that would begin to move us from the inside out, that we might find you uh, beautiful and believable. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.